Howdy, y'all. Welcome to In the Sticks, a podcast about something, nothing, and everything all at once. I hope you guys had a fantastic week. I hope you had a good Thanksgiving. If you decided to travel, good for you. Hopefully you were able to enjoy your time with your loved ones and stay healthy. If you decided to stay home, I can respect that as well. I hope you still enjoyed your Thanksgiving. Hopefully still had some good food to eat. Uh, We went to my in-laws the day after Thanksgiving for Thanksgiving dinner. And uh, we went to my mom's a couple weeks ago. And we're going to go down to Texas to see my dad um, at the end of this week. So we're not too terribly concerned about it. I mean, we will take our precautions. We'll make sure that none of us are running fevers or anything like that before we leave. Um, but by and large, we're, we're not too, too terribly concerned about it. The, the more vulnerable people that we interact with regularly, such as my in-laws, my parents, my, uh, step-parents, they're, they're up there in age as far as, um, the vulnerability is concerned. You know, they're all over 60, but they, most of them work from home and or are retired, And so we, you know, we just try to be careful. We pay attention to our bodies. If we're feeling okay, then we're going to go down there. We understand the risks involved, as do they. But, um, you know, I think with the experience that we have with the virus thus far and how good they're getting getting at contact tracing and all that kind of stuff, I'm I'm fairly confident when I go go see family that I'm not going to infect anybody because I'm asymptomatic. And I'm fairly confident that they're not going to infect me because of their limited interaction with other people. So uh, we're comfortable. We're comfortable doing that kind of stuff. And we're going to continue to do that kind of stuff uh, safely. If you choose not to, I can completely respect that. I totally understand, um, you know, the concerns with the virus. It's obviously extremely contagious and it can be uh, deadly for a certain contingent of the population. So... Um, I'm not one of those people concerns with the virus. However, I try not to let it affect my daily life too terribly much. So, you know, we've been doing pretty good so far. We've, we've, uh, you know, the kids are still in school. We, we go to a public charter school that's not based on the city's school system. So they're still in school. Um, they're doing a virtual Monday every Monday for the rest of this month, but they're still in school four days a week. I still have to go to work every day. My wife still goes to work every day. You know, we both we both take precautions when we have to interact with members of the public. And so, you know, I'm pretty comfortable with what we're doing. And, you know, everybody in my household is not necessarily an at-risk part of the population. So we're good with that. Obviously, we don't want to affect the people that that we spend time with that are a little bit more vulnerable. But like I said, we're careful about it. And we're comfortable doing what we're doing, and we make sure the people that we interact with are comfortable with having us over. So, um, not a big deal. We keep on keeping on in our house. Hopefully, you guys are doing whatever makes you comfortable, and we'll, we'll get through this. I talked about it last time, the vaccines, they're out there, they're coming, and that's going to help us a whole lot as far as, as getting back to normal. So, yeah, so kind of like I talked about on the last episode, we're in a lull as far as the house building goes. We went last week and we picked out some some stuff for the house. We went and picked out our exterior brick. And we picked out a couple of the appliances. Well, we didn't pick them out, but we've kind of narrowed that down. And we also went to the place where we pick out our door and hardware. And we got our doors picked out. Um, we had some hardware picked out. But they didn't give us the price of the hardware. And when we looked it up later, we realized that it was $7 a handle. Holy crap. Uh, yeah. So we're probably going to adjust course on that one a little bit. Um, I think we found some hardware, some some used hardware online that was significantly cheaper. But it looks great, and it's exactly what we're looking for. So we'll, we'll probably wind up buying that and using that instead and saving a little bit of money there. But other than that, there's not been a whole lot of movement. We signed a couple more documents for the bank, so we at least know that the wheels are turning because they're they're sending us more paperwork to sign. I don't know if that's good or bad, but they are sending us more paperwork to sign. We also found out that the bank hired another appraiser, so maybe, just maybe, that'll help speed the process up a little bit, and we maybe maybe we'll see some movement before... Uh, before the end of the year but we're still looking to actually start physically breaking ground uh, 
uh, in January to to start the actual build. But other than that, just like last time, not a whole lot of movement. Um, we did, you know, it's been kind of a, an up and down week for me. I, I've been working on my master's degree for about two years now. And I finished up my capstone project a couple of weeks ago. And I submitted it for my final grade. And I found out that I actually made a 100% on my final capstone project and I will be getting my master's degree soon. So that's very exciting. Um, I'm really excited about that. I got my master's degree in emergency management homeland security from Arizona State University. So I'm pretty pumped about that. But there was a very, very sad point in the week for my family. And if you follow our social media pages... In the Sticks podcast on Instagram and at, at In the Sticks Two on Twitter, you may have seen that we lost our firstborn fur baby this week. His name was Maverick. I brought him up in the first episode. He was half American Bulldog, half Boxer. He was a little over thirteen years old, and his time finally came. It was a very sad day in the household. Um, but to start off this episode, I wanted to, to give a little ode to Maverick. I wanted to tell you a little bit about his life because he was a huge part of our family. Um, so I graduated from the University of Nevada, Las Vegas. And after I graduated, I moved back to Oklahoma. And shortly after I moved back to Oklahoma, I decided I want a dog. I'm an adult now. I have a college degree. I'm about to get a job. It's time to get a dog. <laughs> So I started looking through the paper, that's right, the classifieds in the paper, and I found a breeder not too far away that had half American Bulldog, half Boxer puppies, and I thought to myself, that is exactly what I need. That sounds like an awesome dog. So um, I talked to my parents about it because I was living with them at the time while I was looking for a job, so... Obviously, if I was living with them, the puppy was living with them, so I had to clear it with them first, and they actually decided to come along with me to see if there was a puppy they might want to pick out. So we all went up to the breeder to see these puppies. They were all born on July 3rd of 2007, and the reason that date sticks out in in my mind is because when we went up to to the breeder to pick them up, uh, they had mentioned that uh, the mama dog was, was pregnant with these puppies, and they had this huge... Fourth of July celebration planned, and they were really hoping and praying that Mama would hold off on having the puppies until after the 4th so that they wouldn't have to worry about it while they were also throwing this big 4th of July shindig. So, uh, alas, they they did not wait. They were born on July 3rd, 2007, and so they had to split their time between intermingling with their guests and taking care of brand new puppies. So... Um, so anyways, we're checking out these puppies. There's just a, a, a blob of long ears and long tails and loose flabby skin moving around the grass is one. <laughs> and um, so I, I, I went up to him. Well, actually, I went about 10 feet away from him, and I knelt down, and I kind of rubbed my hand in the grass and called him over to me, and this entire mass of puppy started running towards me, except for one. There was one puppy who just laid in the grass, facing away from us, and he he lifted his head and looked back at us as if to say, hey, that's cool, I'm not going anywhere. And he was this beautiful brindle and white puppy, and I said, that's the one. That's my boy right there. So I went over and started messing with him and playing with him a little bit, and I decided, yep, this is the one. I'm taking him home. And ended up naming him Maverick. Um, I think I told you in the first episode that that uh, my favorite movie is Top Gun, and I couldn't think of a better name for my first pup uh, than Maverick to name him after. Pete Mitchell, the, the uh, infamous, rebellious, courageous fighter pilot. And, uh, yeah, that's all nonsense. I just wanted to name him Maverick because I thought it sounded cool. Anyways, uh, my, my parents ended up picking out his brother, and my little sister named him Scout. And so... Um, we brought them home that day, and, you know, they were awesome together. They they played just like, you know, human brothers would play. They would wrestle around, and then they'd get mad at each other, and then they'd actually start fighting, and we'd have to break them up. But 
he was he was a really good pup. You know, they grew up really fast. They got really big really fast. In the end, he weighed about 86 pounds, um, and he was pretty much that big his entire life. I remember when when they were puppies and they would get a squirrel uh, stuck up in a tree. They would run full blast, and then they would jump up onto the tree, jump off to the tree to try to get to the lowest branch to get to them. And these dogs, man, they would jump like 10 feet off the ground. It was pretty amazing to watch. And they were relentless, man. They never caught a squirrel, but they sure tried their damnedest to get one. Um, but they were so much fun to watch. And I always heard that when they're puppies, you're supposed to play with their feet a lot because, you know, a lot of dogs don't like having their nails cut. They don't like in their They don't like their feet messed with. So when they're little bitty puppies, you should try to play with their feet all the time to, just to get them used to it. And so I did. I did that all the time, and it didn't help one bit. Not with Maverick. Uh, <laughs> he hated having his feet touched. And when, when he would go get his nails cut, I couldn't do it. I tried to cut his nails, and there's just no—I mean, he was just too big. I couldn't do it. And so I would take him to the vet to get his nails cut, and he would poop all over everything and release his anal gland every time. And so we got to the point when we, when we had to take him to get his, his nails cut— the vet would have to sedate him. They would lay him down, give him a little shot of sleepy juice, cut his nails, and then they would give him something to reverse it, and then he would be kind of drunk for half the rest of the day, and then <laughs> we'd press on like normal. But uh, he was like that all the way to the very end. He he hated having his feet touched. But he really, I mean, he never tried to bite me. He, he really never tried to bite anybody. In fact, when he was still a pretty young pup, I remember being at my parents' house looking out the back window, and I could see him. He was about a quarter of the way under the pool deck with his butt sticking up in the air and his tail wagging. And I, I was like, well, he must have something cornered under there. So I stepped out on the back porch, and he pulled his head out and looked back at me. Then he stuck his head back underneath the, the pool deck, and I was like, I wonder what he's got. So I went out there, and I crawled down on my hands and knees and got under the deck with him, and I realized that he had a little baby bunny rabbit uh, in between his front paws. And he was just licking it, wasn't trying to hurt it. He was just playing with it, and so... Um, I got the bunny and I put him out in the pasture and Maverick wasn't too happy about that because I took his friend from him. But I mean, that was just how he was. He, uh, you know, I don't think he would hurt a fly when it came down to it. He thought he was a lap dog though. I know when, when I moved out of my parents' house and I moved in with my wife, who was my, my fiance at the time, um, he would crawl up in the, in the chair and lay down in her lap. I mean, this is an 85 pound dog who thinks he's a lap dog, but, uh, that's just that's just what he was. He was a lover, and he wanted to be right next to his people all the time. He spent a lot of his time just laying out in the yard, in the sun, basking in the uh, basking in the sunlight. He liked to roll in the grass. He would go every single day. He would go outside and roll in the grass, and that was okay in the spring, and the summer, and in the fall. But when the grass died in the late fall and in the winter, he'd go outside and he'd roll around, and he would come back just covered. In dead grass and he had a dog door so if we didn't catch him coming inside all you had to do was follow the trail of grass through the house to find out where he was and we'd have to drag him back outside brush all the grass off of him and sweep up the floor and then he would do it again the next day and every day after that it was kind of a pain but that was also just kind of his thing um when when my wife and I would travel my parents would watch him we would take him over and he'd play with his brother scout and they live on five acres, so they would run around the property and get into stuff and just have a good old time. And I remember my parents decided to go out of town one time, and they, you know, they didn't travel a whole lot. And so when they asked us if we would watch Scout, obviously we wanted to return the favor because you know they did it so much for us. And uh, <laughs> and so we took Scout in for the weekend when they were out of town, and I remember. You know, we put them in the house, and they just they roamed free in the house, and we left. I don't know where we went. We went out to dinner or something. But when we came back, we, we walked in through the door, and the, the smell just hit us in the face like a ton of bricks. I mean, it was horrible. I almost, you know, just right there when you walk through the door. It was bad. And I start looking around, and we had brown wood-look tile in the house. We had a dark rug in the carpet. So I couldn't really see anything at first, and as I started to get further into the house, I noticed a smear on the carpet. And then I noticed this smear come out onto the tile and then lead back off and through the kitchen into the dining room, and I was like, oh no. Well, one of the two dogs, uh, I'm assuming it was Scout, just because Maverick never pooped in the house unless he was sick, and this wasn't a sick kind of poop. One of the dogs... <laughs> 
pooped on the rug in the living room, and we had a Roomba. And we had Roomba set to go off at 1 o'clock every afternoon, and Roomba had drove right through that poo and smeared it all over the house. Oh my gosh, it was so bad. I ended up taking the rug outside to hose it off um, with a garden hose. And when I came back in, my wife was holding the Roomba underneath the kitchen sink trying to wash it off. And, uh, oh, it was just, I mean, we spent the rest of the day cleaning up poop from the house. Roomba was never the same after that, obviously. Uh, and it was just a, it was just a big mess. But um, that was, that's definitely a story that will always uh, stick out in my mind. Maverick loved the kids. Um, you know, there was a couple pictures I posted on our on our social media. Um, I remember bringing Brayden home from the hospital and kind of sitting down on the couch and putting him in my in between my legs, kind of holding him in between my legs. And Maverick came up and just put his head on Brayden's chest and sniffed on him and kind of checked him out a little bit. And then he did the exact same thing when we brought Amelia home. And he loved those kids and they loved him. And they could tug on his ears and pull on his tail and ride him like a horse, and he, he just didn't care. He, he loved them, and um, he tolerated them a lot as well. <laughs> um, I remember when we brought Charlie home, uh, our little miniature schnauzer, he kind of looked at us like, are you freaking kidding me? <laughs> um, but but he loved her too. He I think he helped raise her right because, you know, she's a miniature schnauzer, and they tend to be kind of, yappy sometimes but Maverick never barked and and now Charlie doesn't bark so I'm gonna attribute that to to Maverick teaching her not to bark but they loved each other they played all the time it's actually really really funny watching them play because Maverick weighed 85 pounds Charlie weighs about 14 pounds uh so he would just kind of lay down and let her crawl all over him and bite at him and all kinds of good stuff so um he was a good uh, house alarm though you know I said he doesn't bark but when somebody would come to the door and ring the doorbell or when somebody would just walk around in front of the front door and he could see their shadow, shadow uh, he would lose his mind and bark at him, and he had a really mean bark. Uh, I don't think he would ever hurt anybody, like I said, but uh, he sounded really tough, and and so, we, you know, that was obviously good. Um, I do remember, you know, one of my good buddies at work, he agreed to come take care of Maverick before before he ever met him, so we... My wife and I were going to go out of town, and so I asked I asked my buddy if he would mind mind watching Maverick, and he said, "Yeah, sure, no problem." I never got the the opportunity to introduce Maverick to my buddy, so the first time they met was when he came over to feed Maverick after we had already left, and he walked through the door, and I think Maverick was kind of anticipating that it was going to be me walking through the door, and then it wasn't, and I think that upset him a little bit. <laughs> And he started growling and barking at, at my buddy. Um, never tried to bite him, never tried to hurt him. But from that point forward, any time my buddy came over, Maverick hated him. He was one of two people that Maverick would actually growl at when they walked in the door and was not actually excited to see. So felt bad for my buddy because Maverick's a really sweet dog. He just didn't like him for whatever reason. Um, you know, Maverick was going strong. He's a half, like I said, he's he's half American bulldog, half boxer. So I really didn't anticipate him living past like eight to ten years, maybe. And we got Charlie when Maverick was eleven, so I think that kind of helped prolong Maverick's life a little bit, kept him young, you know. But uh, he started, you know, he started showing his age. And this past August, he had lost a lot of weight. You could see his ribs, you could see his spine. We were pretty concerned. He also had horrible gas. I mean, he wouldn't just clear out a room. He could clear a house. It was bad. <laughs> so so we took him to the vet, and the vet did an ultrasound on him, and she discovered a large mass on his spleen. It was most likely cancerous. Um, she asked if we wanted to have it removed and sent off for testing, but... At that point, we felt like the the return on investment wouldn't be that great because he was so old. I mean, he's 13 years old by this point. So we just said, no, we'll, we'll just try to make him as comfortable as possible. And, you know, he, did, he didn't change much at all for the next couple of months, but we noticed over the past couple of weeks that he was panting a lot. And we talked to uh, one of our friends who happens to be Maverick's vet, and she said, well, you know, he's an old dog. It could be a number of things. He could be going into respiratory failure. He could be in pain because they pant when, when they're in pain. 
Um, he could be hot. It could be a number of things, but given his, his situation, I would venture to guess that he's got some sort of respiratory or heart issue that's affecting him more now than it was before. And then last, uh, last Tuesday night, we sat down to eat dinner, and Maverick was just standing by his food bowl eating. And, you know, it was a little bit different for him just to stand there and pant like that. He would he was usually pretty restless. He'd walk around and pant, but this time he was just standing there with his back kind of arched panting. So we got done with dinner. We had some leftover ham. I, uh, I put some of the leftover ham in Charlie's bowl, and then I put some in Maverick's bowl. And Charlie scarfed hers up, and Maverick didn't even look at his. So I took a little piece of ham out and held it up in front of his face, and he just turned his nose away. And that was really, that was really odd for him. He, you know, he loved every opportunity he got to have some people food, unless it was like a vegetable, then he didn't bother eating it. But, but, uh, any, any type of meat, uh, he definitely would love to eat. Um, so it was pretty odd that he didn't want it. And he just really deteriorated that night from that point forward. Um, you know, he, he laid down and he was panting. It looked like he tried to stand up a couple times and, uh, he just couldn't do it. And so I sat across the living room from him and knelt down and, and he was deaf, but he was looking at me. So I clapped my hands together and snapped my fingers and patted my knees, tried to get him to come to me. And he actually stood up and he took about two steps towards me and, uh, he fell down and, and I knew at that point that that was probably it. So, so we, uh. We made an appointment for him at the vet the next day. <clears throat> I stayed up with him the rest of the night and just kind of loved on him. And I tried to... <laughs> he was stubborn till the very end, though, I tell you. Uh, I didn't think he'd make it through the night, so I went. his bed was in the kids' room. I went and got his bed out of the kids' room. They were asleep. And I put it in our bedroom. And I got him to stand up, and he didn't want to walk, so I picked his heavy ass up and brought him into our bedroom and put him on his bed. And he immediately stood up and stumbled back out to the living room. Um, and so I brought his bed out there, and he laid down on his bed. Probably at about 3.30 in the morning, and that's when I went to bed. And I woke up about 10.30 the next morning, and, and my wife told me that he hadn't moved. He just laid in that same spot panting all night and all morning. So I got dressed, and we all loaded up, put Maverick in the truck, and we took him to the vet. And the vet was really good about it. They gave us a few minutes to hang out with him beforehand, and then, uh, and then they gave him the juice. And uh, you know, it was heartbreaking. The kids were just devastated. Um, there's a very, very sweet picture of my boy laying on top of him as he left this earth to go to doggy heaven, and uh, it was really touching. Kind of goes to show you what a huge impact uh, that silly dog had on our family. Um, so I, I know that. I know he was in a lot of pain. He was in a lot of distress there at the very end. And and I know that he's a lot happier now. He's back with his brother, Scout, in doggy heaven. Scout died several years ago from a heart attack. So they're back, uh, you know, chasing squirrels up trees together again. And so that, that makes me pretty happy. So you know what? We miss you, buddy. We love you. Probably the best dog anybody could ever ask for. And um, so that's an ode to Maverick. But you know what? I, I You know... We're in a lull with the house building process, and I want to keep this weekly podcast going. So I, I thought I would start a little series, at least until, at, at least until we can start building the home, and I can got, I can start giving you some substantive updates as far as what we're doing and what kind of decisions we're making and what we're picking out and that kind of stuff. So I thought, you know, let's do something that everybody wants to talk about. Let's let's do something that that will really bring everybody's spirits up. And so I decided on doing a series about serial killers. <laughs> There's nothing wrong with me, I swear. Listen, so when I was in college, I took a class that was uh, that was all about serial killers, and at the end we had to profile one kind of in depth. And I'm going to start with that one. It's it might be one that you've never heard of. Um, his name is Andre Chikatilo. He was a Russian serial killer. So I'm going to start with him. I'll hit some high profile serial killers, maybe some that you haven't heard of or don't know much about. Um, and the reason I'm doing this is because I do find serial killers to be fascinating. Not in the sense of, like, I admire them, but more in the sense of I, I don't understand how anybody could ever get to the point that they that they get satisfaction and gratification from killing another human being. It just, I mean, it just so far, 
out of my realm of understanding that it intrigues me. And so, like I said, I'm going to start off with uh, the Red Ripper, the Ripper of Rostov, Andrei Romanovich Chikatilo. Uh, and uh, I'll do a couple more between now and the end of the year. And hopefully by then we'll be building the house and I can, <laughs> I can switch back to something that won't give you um, nightmares in the middle of the night. So, so our first one. Andrei Romanovich Chikatilo. He was born October 16th, 1936 in Yablach Noya, Ukraine, part of the USSR at the time. So back then, Ukraine was kind of kind of the honeypot for the USSR. Joseph Stalin uh, practiced this policy of agricultural collectivism, which means that he would he basically enlisted people to grow crops. He would then harvest the crops and spread them throughout the country. Um, there wasn't enough sustenance for everybody to be well-fed and healthy, and so there was a huge famine going on during this time in Ukraine. And um, Chikatilo's family was was no exception. They, they actually worked as farm laborers, and they did not get paid for the work that they did. Uh, but what they did get was a small plot of land uh, close to the hut that they lived in, that they were allowed to uh, grow crops on and harvest for their own um, food, and that's what they lived off of. But there wasn't there wasn't a lot to go on there, and so and and so they were famished. Their entire family was famished. There was rumors of of cannibalism running wild at the time. In fact, uh, Andre's mother used to tell him as a small boy that he had an older brother that was four years older than him that was kidnapped by the neighbors so that they could kill him and eat him because they were starving. Uh, I don't think this was ever confirmed to be true. However, I think that plays a key role in his psychological development moving forward into his later years. His entire childhood was influenced by deprivation. Uh, it, came, it became worse when Russia entered into World War II and Ukraine was subject to heavy bombing from the Germans. Uh, they they faced German occupation at one point. Um, Andre's father was actually enlisted into the war for Russia, and shortly after he went to fight for, for the Russians, he was captured by German soldiers, and he uh, basically he was labeled as a coward when he got back. Uh, they they said that he was a coward because he was he allowed himself to be captured, and so his father was treated poorly because of that, and it spilled over to Andre when he was in school. Several of his classmates bullied him for his father being a coward. When Andre was born, he suffered from a condition known as hydrocephalus, which is water on the brain, and that caused him to have uh, genital urinary tract problems, and so he would wet the bed well into his adolescence, and and as he ventured into his more formative years, he would have trouble sustaining an erection. And uh, by the way, I should probably have put this disclaimer in here before I started. This, this, uh, this story is not for the faint of heart. Uh, if you've got kids around, I would suggest you wait until they're not around to finish listening to this. Uh, yeah, so moving forward. So he suffered from this condition called hydrocephalus. It affected him his whole life. He would wet the bed all, all through his childhood, and he lived in a single-bedroom uh, single hut with his mother after his father went to war. And so they slept in the same bed, and he would wet the bed, and then his mother would beat him and berate him after wetting the bed. And she would do this every single time, and it was almost a nightly occurrence. So um, that didn't uh, work out too well for Andre in the end. Um, and his mother also gave birth to a younger sister, named Tatiana, while his father was being held captive. And, and she gave birth to him two years after he left uh, to go fight for the Russians. So, uh, you know, I'm not the best mathematician, but at face value, I'm thinking two years minus... Yeah, that's right. She uh, gave birth to that child... Uh, conceived that child rather when when um, when the father was off to war. The unfortunate part about that is that it's very likely that Andre's sister was conceived when his mother was raped by German soldiers during their occupation of Ukraine. What's even worse is that, considering that Andre and his mother lived in a single bedroom hut. 
he probably witnessed this event, and um, again, that that would come into play uh, later in his life, having witnessed such a violent sexual assault of his mother. Growing up, Andre was pretty shy and reserved. He wasn't very good with ladies, and as a result of that, his only sexual experience when he was a teenager um, was when he found himself attracted to an 11-year-old girl. He was about 17 years old at the time. He actually tried to force himself upon her by pushing her to the ground, and while she struggled underneath him on the ground, he ejaculated on her. And that was the first time that he would really tie a physical struggle into sexual gratification. He would go on to finish high school, and he he passed the exam to get into Moscow State University. However, overall, his grades weren't uh, they weren't great throughout high school, and it was also believed that officials at the school knew who his father was and knew what happened during the war as far as him being captured, and so um, he was not granted admission uh, to the university. He joined the military for a short period of time after high school and moved to Rodionovo Nes- Nesvetayevsky <laughs> near Rostov in 1960 to be a telephone engineer. During this time, he had two failed relationships, uh, and they both were basically a result of his impotence. And word started to get out about his failure to perform, and uh, people were actually talking about him, whispering behind his back, as he would later say during interviews after his capture. And and so he tried to, to kill himself. He tried to hang himself, but his sister and his mother both caught him in the act and and cut him down from his noose, and he wouldn't, as far as I know, he wouldn't try to do that again. But he did go off to live by himself. His sister actually eventually moved in with him when she graduated high school, but she noticed that he was he was not even attempting to go on any dates with any females, so she tried to set him up with a, a, a local woman named Theodosia. And so Andre and Theodosia started dating, and they ended up getting married in 1963. Despite his uh, ability to perform traditional sexual acts, um, he and Fedosia actually parented two children together. Andre ended up going back to school and getting his university degree in 1971, and he became a school teacher. He wound up moving from school to school because he was consistently getting complaints from the parents of his pupils. Uh, about him sexually assaulting and or molesting them. He wound up working at a mining school. It would be the last school he worked at in Shakti, which was a town near Rostov, where many of his murders took place. Um, in 1981, he got more complaints about molesting his students, and so he was fired from that job, and he left teaching altogether. He started working as a supply clerk for uh, a factory in Rostov, and this actually turned out to... To be a very good conduit for his nefarious behaviors because it required him to travel all over the country. His first murder took place um, a few years prior to him getting fired from the school. It actually took place in 1978. He lured a, a nine-year-old girl by the name of Yelena Zakatnova to a house that he secretly purchased and uh, he attacked her inside this house. Again, he was unable to maintain an erection, so he strangled her and stabbed her three times in the abdomen, and as a result of stabbing her, he was able to achieve the sexual gratification that he was looking for. This obviously helped strengthen his tie of physical violence to sexual gratification, and this was only the beginning. He dumped her body in a river uh, where she was found two days later. There were blood droplets from the victim and the victim's backpack found near Chikatilo's secret home. And he was questioned about his involvement, but um, authorities could never really tie him to it, and so they moved on. Police started to, to focus on a convicted rapist and murderer by the name of Alexander Kravchenko. Alexander's wife and his wife's friend provided very solid alibis. They said that he was at home with them the entire evening. He had never left. Uh, but the, the police threatened to, to charge them with an accessory to murder and perjury, and so they retracted their statements, and then they beat a confession out of Kravchenko. He later would retract his confession, 
but he was still convicted. He was sentenced to death, but that sentence was commuted by the Supreme Court to 15 years. The victim's family threw a fit about this, and so they retried Kravchenko, reconvicted him, sentenced him to death, and he was killed in, in, by a firing squad in 1983. However, Chikatilo's desire to relive this experience was overwhelming for him. He just couldn't, he just couldn't help himself. He initially tried to fight the urges, and he would actually cut his business trips short so that he had to go home back to his family to be with them to reduce the likelihood that he would attack somebody. He wouldn't kill again until September of 1981 after he was fired from his last teaching job. He lured 17-year-old Larissa Kachinko to the woods near a bus stop where he encountered her. He threw her down to the ground, ripped her clothes off, but couldn't stay erect. So she was screaming the entire time, so he shoved mud and leaves and other debris he found on the ground into her throat to quiet her screams, and then he beat her to death. He mutilated the body with his teeth and a stick, then he covered, up, covered her up loosely with leaves and sticks and other brush, and she was found the next day. Nine months later, he killed a 13-year-old girl by stabbing her 23 times in the woods near a bus station, and he used a knife to simulate sexual intercourse. After this, he stopped trying to fight his urges. He just gave up trying to be a good person. He realized he was a monster, and he just he went full bore after this. Beginning the next month, he killed five more victims over a three-month period of time. He mainly was targeting children and young teens, both boys and girls. Most of his victims were uh, either runaways or vagrants or prostitutes. After December of 1982... Uh, he wouldn't kill again until June of 1983, not really sure why there was a lull in his activity, uh, but he wouldn't kill for about six months, but then over the next three months when he started killing again, he'd kill another five victims. Many of the victims were missing their eyes or they had their eyes mutilated, and when Andre was being interrogated later, he, he, he said that there's an old Russian wives' tale that basically stated... You know, the last image that somebody sees before they die is imprinted on their eyeballs. And so he cut their eyes out so his image wouldn't be imprinted on their eyes. In the summer of 1984, he was fired from his job at the factory for allegedly stealing material from his employer. He quickly got another job as a supply clerk at a different factory. And right after he got his new job between August 7th and August, and I'm sorry, September 6th of 1984, in just under a month's time, he killed another five victims in the same brutal manner as his previous victims. Officials could no longer deny the presence of a serial killer as all of these murders were linked by brutality. Uh, the USSR tried to deny that a, a serial killer could exist in their country based on their style of government, and they tried to basically sweep everything under the rug, but word started to get out and they could no longer... Uh, just write these off as individual incidents because they were all linked and they all shared somewhat of a similar MO. So authorities began feverishly investigating and setting up surveillance on both, uh, well, on, on public transportation depots. So like bus, bus stations, train stations, um, these are usually where Andre would find his victims and he would lure them into the woods and nearby and that's where the authorities would find their bodies. So they started setting up surveillance on these places. And one of these operations led to Andre's first arrest on September 13th of 1984. He was, Andre was seen approaching and talking to a child at the Rostov bus station, and he, he was under uh, investigation at that time for theft from his previous employer, and so when the authorities contacted him, they found this out, and they decided to detain him and search him. Um, when they searched his belongings, he was in possession of a large knife, some rope, and some Vaseline, uh, and apparently he explained those away. I, I don't know how. Uh, Mr. Chikatilo. We find you with big knife in your briefcase. How do you explain that? No, you never know when you have to cut up vegetable for dinner. It's always handy to have knife around. Okay, how do you explain rope in your briefcase? Oh, rope is very handy too. You never know when you have to have a rope for something. Okay, then how do you explain Vaseline? Oh, Mr. Officer, please don't ask questions about Vaseline. You don't want to know. All right, get out of here, you sick f***. I have no idea how that conversation went, but apparently he was able to explain away uh, a knife, some rope, and some Vaseline. So anyways, they, they ended up taking his blood type when he was detained, and they found out he was type A. The biologicals that they retrieved from the victims up to this point showed the blood type of the suspect as type AB. 
So from that point, he was charged with uh, theft from his employer, served three months of a one-year sentence, and he was let go. After his release in December of 1984, he started working for a locomotive factory. He didn't kill again until August of 85 when he killed his next victim near a rail station in Moscow. Um, He killed again later that month, and a psychologist was brought in to help uh, create a profile of the suspect in this case. This had been done previously, but the profile was was way off. Um, And when they brought this new psychologist in, um, he generated a profile that described the suspect as a recluse male, 45 to 50 years of age. He had a painful and isolated childhood, and he was incapable of courting women. So this psychologist that they brought in really hit the nail on the head as far as the suspect profile in this case when they were describing Chikatilo, even though they didn't know they were describing him. The profile also described the suspect as likely to be married with children, but could only achieve arousal by seeing victims suffer, and he would use knife as a substitute for his genitalia. Wow, this guy was good. (laughs) Um, Andre followed the investigation very closely. He would read the news clippings, and he'd watch the news, so he he tried to to lay low a little bit, and he didn't kill for, for nearly a year. Um, His next murder happened on August 18th of 1986. The victim was found cut open from their neck to their pelvis, missing missing a breast and both eyes. Andre would go on to kill three times in 1987, but only when he would travel far away from Rostov in order to try to conceal his murders uh, because the investigation was focused mainly in the area of Rostov. He'd kill three times in 1988. These three victims were quickly tied to his other crimes, and they occurred a little bit closer to Andre's hometown. Between March and August of 1988, Andre killed five more victims. Investigators began surveilling public transportation depots again and even installed cameras on trains and buses to try to get a glimpse of the killer. Andre would kill another five victims between January and August of 1990 even while all these other platforms were were under surveillance. On October 27th of 1990, police came up with this plan to basically overload certain rail stations and bus stations with uniformed police personnel, but then they left three of them uh, covered only by undercover police personnel. During this time, at one of the stations monitored by the undercover personnel, Andre lured a 16-year-old boy to the nearby woods and killed him. His body was discovered... Uh, three days later on November 3rd. So at one of the stations where there was undercover surveillance, Andre managed to lure a victim into the woods and kill him. Then again on November 6th, Andre killed another victim near the Donlishkos rail station. He was spotted by an undercover officer after the crime when he was coming out of the woods. The officer noticed uh, that Andre had walked up to like a, a well and he was washing his hands and face. He had soil stains on his clothes and even what appeared to be a blood smear on his face. He didn't have, the officer didn't have a formal reason to arrest Andre at the time, but he took down all his information and he documented everything that he saw as far as the soiled clothing and the possible blood on his face. Um, the victim's body was discovered the following week and they went back through their notes from that day and discovered that Andre was, in fact, a suspect. So before they ever even tried to contact Andre, they went back to his previous employers, and they were able to link him um, through his travels to several other cities where these murders had taken place. They also discovered behavior while he was employed as a teacher uh, of, of sexual assault of his pupils when he was at different schools. So they were starting to tie all this stuff together and build their case. After they had all this information, they put him under surveillance, and he was seen at a at another rail station interacting with several youths. He would go up and talk to one to try to lure them away. If they broke the conversation, he would simply walk around until he could find another youth that was by themselves, and he would start talking to them. So after they witnessed him talking to a few different youths, he they, they went up to him and arrested him, and he was arrested on November 20th of 1990. When he was arrested, he was found to have a bite mark on one of his fingers from his from his last victim. They took a sample of his blood and held him in custody. They didn't start formally questioning him until the next day, and they had basically they had 10 days to file charges on him or they would have to release him again. During the questioning, Andre said that they were mistaken. He brought up the fact that he was arrested way back in 1984 for the same type of crimes but they he's you know he said hey you took my blood and you told me that my blood type didn't match 
um, the blood type of the suspect. So they waited for his blood results to come back. They came back again as type A, and the blood type of the semen found on all the victims, remind you, was type AB. So they decided to get a semen sample from Andre. Um, Despite his blood and saliva blood type being type A, his semen was actually type AB. So they were able to forensically tie him to the previous murders at this point. Eight days later, the psychologist who created that initial profile, or the the second profile on him that was so spot on, uh, they pulled him in to assist with the questioning of Andre. Um, The psychologist's name was Bukanovsky. He read part of his profile that he had written to Andre, and after he got done reading these excerpts from his profile, Andre broke down crying, and he, he basically said, Okay, you got me. I'm ready to confess. So Andre confessed to 34 of the 36 murders that he was being accused of at the time. He was able to recount specific details about each murder with striking detail, even all the way back to the very beginning. Um, he could remember specific phrases that the victims were saying. That's super creepy. He, re- he recounted the victims crying, writhing in pain, and he said that the blood and the, sh- and the physical struggle it brought him great pleasure. He also admitted to swallowing the tongues and nipples of some of his victims that he removed with his teeth, and even to chewing on uh, a uterus of one of his female victims. He said he didn't eat it, he spat it out. Uh, I don't know that that makes it any better, but he was eventually charged with 34 murders and later confessed to an additional 22 murders. He led authorities to the grave sites of several victims that hadn't been discovered yet. Uh, They did a psychological evaluation of him to make sure that he was fit to stand trial, which they said he was. And his trial began on April 14th, 1992. Now back to the 10 day thing. This psychologist was brought in, um, on the ninth day. And so on the 10th day, on the very last day that they could detain him, he finally spilled his guts and confessed to all these crimes. So they, they got him just in the nick of time before they had to release him. So his trial began in April of 1992. He was kept in a steel cage in the courtroom to protect him from the family's of the victims because they were obviously irate and they they wanted to hurt him physically. <laughs> During his trial, he would he just acted super bizarre. He would expose himself. He would go on these weird tangents about just really strange and unimportant details that had nothing to do with the case. The first two days, two days of the trial, were spent reading the charges against Andre. It took them two full days of a trial to read each charge because every murder was covered in detail. The judge would have to tell Andre several times to shut his mouth during the trial. And he would, and like I said, he would often fall into diatribes about his childhood trying to, trying to basically say, hey, this ain't my fault. I had a f***ed up childhood and that's why I turned out this way. All this stuff the judge felt was an attempt to show that he was crazy even though he was deemed fit to stand trial. And at one point during the trial, Andre just didn't say anything for three days. Um, The judge would ask him questions and he wouldn't respond. Even his own defense attorney would ask him something and he wouldn't respond. So at the end of the three days, uh, the judge adjourned the trial for two weeks. When the trial resumed... Andre's attorney requested that a secondary psychiatric evaluation be done, and the judge denied the request. The defense attorney also requested a new judge because he felt that this judge was biased, and that request was also denied. The trial would last all the way through August when closing arguments started. After the closing arguments, it would be another two months until the court came back with a verdict. Despite the judge's obvious bias in the case, Andre would uh, actually be acquitted of one of the charges, so he was convicted on 52 of the remaining charges on October 14th. On October 15th, Andre was sentenced to death plus 86 years because, you know, death isn't enough. They had to to tack on an an extra 86 years just in case, you know. Uh, (laughs) Andre appealed his, his conviction but his appeal was denied by the Supreme Court in 1993. So on Valentine's Day, 1994, he was executed with a single gunshot behind his right ear, and he was buried in the prison cemetery. If you've ever seen the 1990 film, I'm sorry, the 1995 film Citizen X, it's based on the Rostov Ripper. It's based on Chikatilo's story. Um, I, I wanted to find out what happened to... Um, Andre's two kids and his wife after he was arrested and convicted and executed. And there's really not a whole lot of information about them out there. His son, Yuri, grew up 
basically following in his father's footsteps, unfortunately. Not quite the uh, prolific serial killer as his dad. Uh, He was convicted of rape and attempted murder in 2009, and he's likely still in prison. Um, His his daughter, Laidmila, she married and had at least one kid. There's a picture of her with her kid and her husband, but she's pretty much stayed out of the spotlight and kept her head down. And not sure if she's even still alive right now, but uh, she did have a kid and a husband and apparently lived a somewhat normal life uh, after her father was executed. And I couldn't find any information on Theodosia following Andre's conviction. So there you have it, one of the most prolific, craziest, nastiest, terrifying serial killers of all time, Andre Chikatilo. You know, this is no disrespect to Mr. Michael Keaton. He's a fabulous actor. I love his movies. But there is a picture online of Andre Chikatilo where he looks strikingly like Michael Keaton. So if they do another movie profiling the Rostov Ripper, I think they should get Michael Keaton to play him because he it's uncanny how much they look alike. Um, so, yeah. So that was the uh, the first serial killer in our series of serial killers. I hope you don't have nightmares but uh, I enjoyed researching him yet again. Like I said, he was the the serial killer that I did my final project on in my class of serial killers. And um, I'll, I'll profile a few more between now and the end of the year. So I hope you're not too disturbed. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I hope you enjoyed this this episode. And I'll come back with any updates that we have on the house with the next episode. And I'll profile a new serial killer. Haven't decided who I'm going to do yet, but undoubtedly it will be someone very interesting. So thanks for joining along this week. Please give us a like and a follow on In The Sticks podcast on Instagram and at In The Sticks 2 on Twitter. If you are so inclined, please leave a review and a rating on your favorite podcast platform. That'll help spread the word about the good show. So, yeah, that's all I got. I hope you guys have a fantastic week, and I'll see you next time on In the Sticks.